It's hard to believe that we've been having in-depth weekly conversations about movies since 2011. So many great conversations over the years about so many great movies. All that said, producing this show week after week requires a ton of work behind the scenes. Becoming a Next Real member gives you access to all sorts of additional and exclusive content. Plus, you're helping us keep the lights on. Just head to thenextreel.com slash membership, where you can learn more about becoming a member, which costs a measly $5 a month, practically the same as one fancy coffee drink. And you get so much more. Every month, we record a bonus episode exclusively for members. Those episodes cover movies from whatever series we're covering at the moment, or add to previous series. Some movies we've covered that only members get to hear us discuss include The Blues Brothers, The Russia House, Naked Lunch, Independence Day, The Hot Rock, and Relic, the better one. Plus, members get to vote on what we're going to discuss for those episodes. We also record additional pre- and post-show content in regular episodes that only members get to hear. Like conversations about similarly themed movies. And answering listener questions from our live member chat. Speaking of our live member chat, we record almost all of our episodes in Discord, where members can chat right along with us live. Members get access to other members-only channels in our Discord community as well. On top of all that, members get all episodes a full week earlier than everyone else in a private Next Reel feed just for them that includes all the shows in the Next Reel family. The Next Reel, the film board, movies we like, sitting in the dark, and more new projects on the way. To top it all off, members don't have to listen to ads. We've already eliminated those annoying, dynamically inserted ads that, let's face it, we all hate it. We are listening to you. We love podcasting for a living, and those ads help to pay the bills. Now, we're counting on you, dear listener. We promise we aren't going back to those terrible, dynamically inserted ads that don't relate to us at all. All we ask is that you consider supporting the Next Real family of podcasts with a membership. Again, it's $5 per month or $55 per year. Just head to thenextreel.com slash membership. Thenextreel.com slash membership. Get your access to early, ad-free episodes with bonus content, member bonus episodes, and access to member channels and live streams in Discord by signing up today. I'm Pete Wright. And I'm Andy Nelson. Welcome to the next reel. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. RoboCop is over. I'd buy that for a dollar. We get the best of both worlds. The fastest reflexes modern technology has to offer onboard computer-assisted memory and a lifetime of on-the-street law enforcement programming. It is my great pleasure to present to you... RoboCop. This guy is really good. He's not a guy, he's a machine. Detroit has a cancer. Cancer is crime. Let the woman go. You are under arrest. You, you better back up, pal. Your move, creep. Andy, RoboCop. We talk, we're talking about the animated series, right? <laughs> we're starting with RoboCop 3. Okay. RoboCop. I, how many times can we say that? Uh, I enjoyed my time with RoboCop. It was another one of those movies, 1987, that was important to me in my teenagedom. Uh, I really loved it. I felt like a big boy watching it. And now 
I, I know because I've already seen your letterbox review how it held up for you, which is strong. Yes. Is that fair? Very fair. It is strong to me, too. But I have to say, I know also how much you hated the remake. Mm. And I just want to be a voice of reason <laughs> for your detestation of the remake. Because there are things in the remake that they do that they actually, I think, improve upon. It's not a great, you're right, it's kind of a slog, but there are things in that movie that are worth more than one star. And my heart was a little bit broken. So maybe we talk about that in the in the, the sequels and remakes, and you can have your, your table. <laughs> but just know, I'm coming in with a little bit of, you know what, they kind of made RoboCop better. So interesting. That's out there. Interesting. Now. That's out there now. I don't even know yeah. where to start. <laughs> We're starting with that. Okay. <laughs> well, this whole series, uh, this again is this is the final entry in our 1988 Academy Awards Best Visual Effects nominees. The two nominees, Interspace and Predator, the uh, Princess Bride and RoboCop, these are the two films that were added on that members had voted on as other films to talk about. And then, of course, we had as our December 2023 member bonus episode, The Lost Boys, uh, also not nominated, but voted on by our members for us to discuss. You know, we've been kicking off these conversations talking about the visual effects. Um, so let's start there. There are a lot of visual effects throughout this film. We've got the RoboCop suit. We've got the all of the violence that is perpetuated on many characters in many different ways. We've got the stop motion animation, which with Ed Two Hundred Nine. We've got all this sorts of movie stuff, yeah. is about robot cops, and the image that Andy picks for the th for the hero image for this movie on our website is a thug melting in goo in toxic goo. Like that is a hell of an effect. There are some. Crazy effects going on in this movie. Yeah, it's it's full of them. And so, uh, I mean, I feel like, you know, we could kind of just throw a stick at, at at them and just start talking. Which one, where where should we start talking about the effects? Should we, should we bring up, you know, Robotine as the, the head bringing all this to life? Yeah, for sure. I think that's where we start. Good old Robotine. Um, we have talked about him. He was involved in... Uh, what was the first thing we talked about that he worked on? Probably The Thing. He also worked on Inner Space this same year. He's worked on Piranha, which we've talked about. He'd go on to work with Paul Verhoeven on Total Recall, Basic Instinct. Um, he worked on RoboCop 2, RoboCop 3. He worked on 7. He worked on the first Mission Impossible film. Uh, he worked on Fight Club. Uh, you know, he's even worked on uh, Game of Thrones. He's been all over the place in the world of effects. Um, but in so many ways, like between 2002 and 2014, when he did some work on game of Thrones kind of disappeared for a long time. But I mean, the stuff that Robotine creates has always been, I think, I think about like effects on film and just, I think Robotine is behind so many amazing things that I love. Like the character's name in legend, the, the creature makeup, uh, darkness, Tim Curry's, creepy devil character like that uh special effects uh makeup that he put together for that just like that's the sort of stuff rob Boutine does and totally brings his a game here yeah well the howling um you know we talked about the howling on us sitting in the dark briefly yeah i mean he's uh, a piranha uh 
<laughs> what are you going to say about Piranha? So, yeah, I mean, he's in he's he's an incredible talent. And uh, seven, I mean, you talk about the effects that he created in seven around things, you know, working in the auspices of this sort of horrific things humans do to one another. Like it was just really perfectly gruesome so yeah i think he's I, I think he's a real talent and i think it shows in this movie it's incredibly fun this movie like the the effects and it, it feels bright and colorful and you know silver a lot of silver so less color but it still feels very bright to me and being able to do all this and and make it feel real and in world is a, a real testament to his skill and the team, right, bringing this together. Yeah, the the RoboCop suit. Well, I mean, it. You know, there's a lot of stories about how difficult it was um, to create, to work with on set. Peter Weller notoriously had a terrible time making this film because the suit was so hard to work in, so hard to move in. Uh, it was so hot. It said in the the heat of Dallas uh, summer when they were filming, when on the really hot days, he was losing up to three pounds. Um, just from all the sweat, <laughs> because he was sweating so profusely in the suit, which is uh, just crazy. But I mean, though the right work was put into it, paired with Peter Weller and movement coaches to really come up with something that feels so authentic. The way that it moves, it just feels like this big, heavy titanium machine with a man inside kind of moving around. And it's, uh, you know, a testament to all of their work that they came up with something so um, incredible. It's really deceptive because it, it looks like, you know, intuitively it feels like a, a, okay, it's a suit you put on the suit, but it's like a 10 hour suit to get in and out of this, of this thing. And um, that endeavor for Peter Weller is, you know, it's not lost on me, like how long these shoot days were, because once you get in the suit, you're not coming out of it easily. So it's incredible. And then we get into some, you know, classic stop motion, right? Ed 209 gives us some old school filmmaking, which is really fun to do. And obviously, in the scope of lower budget for this film, it gave them a chance to to create something that they otherwise likely would not have been able to do. And so by actually kind of creating this this stop motion, uh, the Phil Tippett worked on this uh, sequence, like coming up with the little stop motion sequence of uh, these two foot tall miniatures. It works. And I mean, you know, through today's eyes, you can kind of see the the line between the stop motion and then the plates that they were filming uh, for it to, to work within. But, you know, in the magic of the movies, it's like, where's that line in the world of effects of not buying something like this versus not buying something in, you know, quantum mania or something, you know, it's like, it, it, I don't know. I, I just feel like the line is there. And if you're invested in the story, it, it allows for those sorts of issues to kind of, uh, be eased a little bit, I suppose. And there's something about the stop motion animation that gives it this connection to the old world film special effects that it, it enhances the the tone of the comic nature of the film anyway. And so to that end, I feel like it it kind of fits. Yeah, I think so. Did you happen to watch it with your kids? Uh, I watched it with my son, yes. What did he think of the of the stop motion stuff in particular? He loved the Ed 209. He he actually even called out that style and really enjoyed seeing it kind of looking that way. Mine too, but 
also did not get lost in it, right? It was, it's such a clear effect that it's, that it, it was like such a thing to say, oh, well, that's, Look at what they were, the old people were able to make back in the day, kind of an effect. Like it was a dated effect and he wasn't lost. I was surprised that he wasn't lost in the fact that it was a, like, this was a threatening scene. Like, let's get scared at this giant robot who's out of control. Um, you know, let's go ahead and, and, and let ourselves get lost in the magic of the movie. And, uh, and I, you know, as somebody who's, seen the movie a million times like I was. I was really thrilled by that sequence. I was like, oh, I love Ed 209. And so I was I was a little disappointed that the youth didn't didn't catch on as I did. I was disappointed in my own child, Andy. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> well, I mean, it's it is an interesting element to end up including. And I can see like in the scope of unlimited budget, if they if they had everything that they wanted, they could have used. I mean, they did build that full size one to be standing outside of OCP. But obviously, they didn't have the budget to actually do do more with that. And so to what they were trying to achieve, it's incredible, I feel like they actually, yeah, captured something that um, works quite well. And I think when you're watching the Ed 209 taking on RoboCop through the the offices of OCP, it actually is quite effective. Like it actually works. It's, yeah. Um, like I, I'm buying that they're actually having a fight and interacting. And it's the sort of effects work like you see in Jurassic Park, where the filmmakers know when to use the stop motion, when to use just the arm of Ed 209 for, for RoboCop to be interacting with, like they find all of the different elements. Okay, here we can use a piece of it. Here's the stop motion. And it's blended in a way where it, it puts it together in my mind, at least. Yeah, to me, too. I totally buy into the fact that that we're, you know, we're dealing with a, a fight between giant robot and robot man. Uh, it it absolutely plays for me. But again, I think it's because I saw it as as young as I did, you know, like it just maybe I, I just want to I want to blame a little bit of that on my son's inability to see it for what it was. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Uh, aside from the yeah. robots. This is uh, an incredibly violent film, uh, something that Paul Verhoeven amped up so much because he wanted it to kind of cross the point of horror and disgust into over-the-top craziness to make people laugh. And and so it is a very, very violent film. Right out of the gate, you know, the first thing that we see is uh, Ed 209 when Dick Jones is demonstrating it to the board up in the conference room. Uh, the Ed 209 uh, kills, kills, and kills again <laughs> one man, so one much. poor, poor man who uh, is chosen to be kind of the assistant in this uh, demonstration. And it is so incredibly bloody that this was a this was the sequence that they ended up cutting quite a bit out of for its. Uh, theatrical release to get uh, the R rating. It has since been restored in all of its bloody glo glory, you know, as of, I don't know, the late 90s, I think, when Criterion first released the uh, director's cut on, on Laserdisc. And it's pretty much been in every cut since. So that, that kicks us off. And I mean, you know, a lot of squibs, I think they had 200 squibs or over 200 squibs attached to the actor. They had a pouch full of spaghetti squash mixed with fake blood, like all sorts of stuff just attached to him. He said it was a horrible, painful experience. He felt like he kept getting punched. Uh, so I don't know if that was the effects team not 
protecting him properly. But regardless, like that kicks us off with the violence. We'll talk about kind of the thematic uses of it in a minute. But as far as like the way the violence is depicted, I mean, it starts from there, goes through a lot of other sequences, lots of blood and gore. Um, how does that all play for you as far as the world of effects? To me, even the the assassination, the opening assassination by Ed 209 is not the is not the pinnacle sequence for me. It, this one comes a little bit later. It's the it, it is Murphy's yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> disintegration. Yeah. My God, um, that is an extraordinary sequence of violence and, uh, you know, maybe made more impactful over the years as we've we've been dealing with sort of the the relationship of police and and police uh, violence against police and it, what an incredibly dangerous world that is um and the fact that he gets when he gets that hand shot off and his arm shot off and all of the, that is such a uh, it, it's such a grotesque portrayal and weller i i think you know is is really good performatively at demonstrating this violence like it looks like it hurts <laughs> a lot and uh, right up until the moment his head hits the pavement um it's extraordinary it is extraordinary practical gooey violence and again working with rob botin to figure out what are the things that make sense for us to do how can we shoot this in a way where people are going to buy into it Figuring out, okay, here's where we need to put a create a prosthetic hand. Here's where we need to create a prosthetic arm. Here's where we need to create an entire prosthetic top half of Peter Weller so that we can actually put put a bullet through his brain and have the back of it kind of blow out. It's a lot of thought and work that would go into these effects. And this is, you know, Paul Verhoeven who, you know, is a director that certainly warrants a lot of conversation. This is early in his uh career in America. And he hadn't really worked on this sort of stuff before. So was really relying on the effects team to come up with stuff that make that made his vision come to life. But he is the one who said, I really want this to be over the top and violent because I wanted to kind of cr- cross that line of excess into humor. And, and so when we're wa- and in the case of watching Murphy get killed, like this was a very important moment where you wanted to really, have the audience attach themselves to this character and you see him go through some horrific, horrific things. And so you feel really bad for him. And then, you know, that helps you connect to this kind of robotic character who ends up filling in for him for the rest of the film. And I find that to be a powerful use of the violence in the film, just the way that it's portrayed. And yeah, you're right. I mean, the way that they kill Murphy, it's just, it's horrifying. And this is a part where I don't think the violence crosses into humor. I just think this is like horrifying violence that works to really cement your connection to this character. And you're, you're heartbroken that he's been killed in such a gruesome, painful way. And they go right into the rehabilitation of him as RoboCop. And I think that sequence is done with a lot of heart. Like the way they keep cutting back from these wide angle shots of of his POV, looking at all the the equipment uh, being put on his face and checking his eyes. And and, uh, then they cut to what's going on in his head with his, you know, his wife trying to talk to him and his son watching TJ Laser, like all of those pieces – and then cutting back to the images of the guys actually shoot executing him with their, you know, with their machine guns like that is a, an extraordinary kind of montage that I, I think has just the right amount of, as you say, that horrific violence that isn't funny and 
the the heart uh, as we watch him sort of lose himself and come back as something different. I, I think it's great for a movie like this. Like I, you don't expect quite that much. I didn't expect that quite that much sensitivity in that sequence. Like it's really a low point for Murphy, and he really makes me feel like a low point as an audience member. It's great, and that's you know stepping aside from the effects for a moment. That is really something that drew Verhoeven to the story and to his character. And and the sequence for him that was the most important was when Robocop goes back to Murphy's house and goes through that little <laughs> the the futuristic real estate tour of the house with the little monitors everywhere. And as he's walking through the house, he's reliving moments with his son, with his wife, with, you know, taking pictures, like all of these different moments that kind of keep coming back to him. I mean, like he's having these flashes of memory and soul and connection to that humanity that um, that he had presumably lost when he became RoboCop. And, you know, I think that's exactly what Verhoeven latched onto perfectly throughout this film that really kind of continues to um, connect us to RoboCop over the course of the story. And so by the time we walk through the whole film and we are following him after all the all the awful things that have happened and having to deal with uh, Directive Four and just all the things that he you know has to fight against, by the time we get to the end and we hear him say you know Murphy as his name, like we are connected to this character, and it just we there is as much human for us in this character as there is robot. Yeah, for sure. One of the most sort of. I don't know, the most anxiety producing sequences is right after the montage when they're booting him up and they make the decision to do the the whole body prosthesis. And he's watching and listening to them talk about lose the arm. OK, lose the arm. Yeah. Awful, awful bits to see just what like what they signed away for him as an officer for this particular OCP program, like the the loss of. Well, I mean, it, it, that's the trophy, right? The loss of humanity, but the loss of agency that comes with signing on to the work uh, is almost as horrific as some of the actual blood and guts violence. Like that's that's part of the identity of the movie is watching, you know, how authoritarian corporate regimes can be, um, you know, in, in partnership with law enforcement. And uh, it's bad news. Well, that's what's so interesting. The whole idea that as we are exploring the corporation of OCP, we're getting a sense of the players within this organization. And, you know, at the beginning, we've got Bob Morton, who is very ambitious. He wants to kind of um, work his way up the corporate ladder. And we kind of like we can see elements within him that we like, like we can see that he doesn't really like Dick Jones, who's the senior. I don't know if he's the senior VP. He's way up there. But Dick Jones is the is the one who is behind the Ed 209 project, which, of course, has that awful uh, thing. And, of course, Bob uses that as an opportunity to get in good with the old man, uh, the CEO, as uh, with his RoboCop plan. And so. We're kind of getting a sense, okay, we kind of like the old man. He's the CEO of this company, Dan O'Hurley. He's always a pleasure to watch. Uh, Ronnie Cox does such a great job as the the terrible, <laughs> terrible person of Dick Jones. And Miguel Ferrer, we're like, okay, I kind of like him. But that's what's so interesting is like we're establishing the nature of a corporation as essentially like Detroit is so broken 
they can't even fund their own police department. So they've pretty much handed the management of their police department over to a corporation. And now OCP is running the cops. And that's essentially kind of the crux of of how we get into this place. And so within the corporation, we're getting the good guys and the bad guys. But even by the time we have Bob Morton in that scene that you're talking about, you're like, God, I thought I liked him, but he is kind of a total ass. And like he he is so about the bottom line and making his project the top and the best so that he can uh, win with the old man that he doesn't care about the humanity of this for him dead cop who who serves only as providing the body and the extra pieces that he needs for his project and that's where you go oh wait a minute i guess i don't like him (laughs) yeah yeah you don't end up liking just about anybody in here except for you know Anne and Alex, that's pretty much it. Pretty much. I mean, you feel bad for the the cops in general. You know, the the, yeah. the captain always feels Sergeant pretty, Reed. Pretty yeah, he's on. always put upon. Yeah. <laughs> right. All right. So you want to get back to effects? Uh, what is your next favorite effect? I, I don't even know. It's my next favorite. It, it possibly is my favorite of of the whole thing, and it is the the horrifying horrifying moment when Emil ends up crashing his truck into the toxic waste. I love the 80s where just giant tanks of toxic waste seemed to be everywhere in the world of industry. Uh, he crashes uh, their truck into the toxic waste, uh, the tank, and then is is <laughs> walking like as all of his skin is is kind of oozing off of his body. And he, you know, goes up to Leon, who freaks out, and then, of course, uh, steps out in front of the car that uh, that Boddicker crashes into and just ex- explodes in just, you know, soupy grossness all over the car. It's like one of the as when I first saw this, like absolutely my favorite thing, and I just I still love it to this day. And the fact that I was, I was reading how Robotine described the, his skin melting, he said, "quote off his bones like marshmallow sauce." <laughs> I was like, "Well, yeah, I guess that's that pretty much yeah, sums it up." It. <laughs> sums it up. Uh, that is. I just think one of the grossest but most fun special effects still to this day. Like they nailed everything about that. It's just horrifying and perfect. And yes, that is why I featured it in some of our show art because oh, it's with abandoned. It highly yeah. represents what they were doing with effects for this film. The thing that I like so much about it is that it feels so much like a garage effect, like corn syrup and melting expanding foam like it feels like something i'd see on a like on a youtube video today it's like here let's look at let's do something that's really gross here's how you can do this at home right i the stuff that they used to make this i i feel like i could find in my laundry room right like i could probably make this with household chemicals not to the art uh, that they do here but it that's one of the things that i think is so fun about it is it feels like these guys are having a ball just experimenting with making things that go goo. Exactly. And and it's perfect. Yeah. It's perfect. It feels fun. Yeah. It it feels like fun effects. And that's yeah. That's this is that line I think that Verhoeven was talking about with the effects where it's like it's so over the top that it becomes comical and you're meant to laugh at it. And and he said like the censors wanted to take that out of the film because they thought it was so horrifying and they were like this gets the biggest laughs in every single screening we show. Like this is the moment that the audience really kind of clicks with that over the top violence. Speaking of this is not a goo effect, but an explosive effect, it feels like we have the spiritual sequel to Rollerball, 
with the uh, armament uh, in the case where uh, Boddicker brings his buddies their guns. Mm. Those exploding guns where they just shoot stuff one shot and it explodes. <laughs> Feels like the, the rollerball sequence where they're shooting the trees and it just explode to me. It's like everything light. just <laughs> blows up in fireballs. Again, that is one of those, uh, another example of the, let's take the thing we know militarized weaponry in the cities isn't a great thing, but let's take it so over the top that with one shot, we can destroy a, a car or a storefront or w- whatever it is. It's so over the top violence that it's uh, it's hard to take seriously, though. I know a lot of people did. I think that's part of what makes it a bit of a controversial movie. Um, but it is funny. It's funny what they what they end up doing with the the guns. Yeah, no, it's it's so over the top. Well, you know, and it it ties into just the cars themselves, the SUX, yeah, six thousand, like yeah. like all of this stuff, like is so over the top nonsense that uh, it's just you know by default it just is is it's bad, but uh, it's just so funny. Yeah, another interesting little effect that I don't think I, I ever really knew about until reading up on this film is that you know, and this fits having just talked about predator and the fact that they were using kind of like that that the way that the kind of the infrared camera capturing the actors in the film they thought that the thermographic photography would be too much this is for the sequence when robocop goes into the city hall to save the city councilman or the mayor whoever was uh from the one it it felt very harvey milk like that whole sequence but done in a very comical way where he's like what i want a car with really bad gas mileage it's just like all that nonsense but the thermographic (laughs) photography they thought they they couldn't afford so they actually put actors in body stockings painted them with thermal colors and then they filmed it with a polarized lens filter so they just faked the whole thing which i just think is so fantastic to find out (laughs) that's awesome (laughs) the thermographic colors (laughs) uh that's very funny well it works i mean it totally works that whole sequence plays absolutely no it's it's it is an effects filled film for sure. And uh, to that end, I think they do an incredible job with all of the aspects throughout from beginning to end. Yeah, I, I think that's true. I think even the final, you know, that final sequence uh, or the final Boddicker conflict in the quarry is great because, you know, it's another one that's like right out in the middle of the day and they use effects such as gravity <laughs> to make it to make it horrifying when they drop all the rebar and debris on top of RoboCop like it it's gruesome like it just it looks like oh god I can I feel the weight of that stuff um I, I thought it was really really great even going to you know when he slashes Boddicker's throat and just kind of like the giant yeah. giant glob of this bloody mess just spew. like lands on his chest <laughs> it's like, yeah yeah yep yeah, good stuff. And it does lead us to the the final climax in the OCP office, which is the um, you know, I you're I can't harm an officer of the company and it gets us to the to one of many great one-liners. You're fired. <laughs> right, Dick. You're fired. Thank you. One of the very very great uh one-liners, satisfying emotional uh dopamine hit one-liners in film. And that actually leads to one of the last bits of effects. It's the stop motion Dick Jones falling, which always looks like his arms are just a tiny bit too long. His arms are too long. (laughs) Too long. (laughs) But again, it's of the era, and I I just revel in the joy of all of these little things working together. Like so many different types of effects all coming together for this film. Yeah. It's all very fun. Yep. For sure. Well, should we jump into Verhoeven? 
Sure. Good old Paul Verhoeven. I have, what a guy. I don't think we've talked about anything of his on this show before, which is kind of sad because he's done some really great films, some really interesting films. He's always controversial. We're going to be talking about him in our very next series after this when we jump to the Golden Raspberry Awards. And we're looking at Worst Director nominees from... 95. And of course, he was nominated for Showgirls. So that will be a fun one to talk about. What's interesting about Verhoeven, of the movies that he's done, and he's done a lot of movies, he's only done a few that were, that were, I feel like were big here. And I think I've seen them all. All the movies before like 1981, I didn't see, and they're, I didn't even know he did. They're like short films, TV series. They're all movies, you know, Dutch movies, I guess. Right. Um, and then he, he ended up coming over here and did, I, I haven't seen Flesh and Blood. That was his first English language film in 1985, Rutger Hauer, Jennifer Jason Lee. Right. Have you seen uh, that one? I have not, but I've, uh, I have it on my list. It's, uh, you know, I'm trying to, he's one of the many directors I'm trying to, complete more of their filmographies. And so I'm definitely curious to see that one. But from then on, Robocop, Total Recall, Basic Instinct, Showgirls, Starship Troopers, Hollow Man, Black Book, Tricked, I haven't seen, and I haven't seen L or Benedetta. But most of them. Yeah, I missed Black Book and Tricked, and I, I missed Benedetta as well. But I saw L, and that was um, de definitely a very interesting one. Isabel Huppert, very strong performance. Yeah, I mean his run though from eighty seven you could you could kind of I guess go through two thousand. That is a solid run of big effects over the top. Uh, I mean, basic instinct not really big effects, but certainly he's going over the top with kind of the sexual energies within that film. That's kind of a solid run of films that he has. Uh, where he's really pushing bounds and doing interesting things with effects and playing with kind of uh, satire in a number of them. Such an interesting filmmaker. Where's the strong points in that run of films for you? Well, I've come around on Starship Troopers for sure. I, I don't think I, I loved it when I first saw it. And then I think I was on the bandwagon of what were they doing when I got a little older. And now I've come back around to really appreciating what that movie is doing, especially after, you know, looking at the source material. I, you know, I'll always have a place in my heart for Robocop and Total Recall. I think I might be on an island. I really liked Hollow Man. You know, Black Book is probably the strongest. It's a very different kind of movie about, you know, not. Nazi-occupied Netherlands, and um, it's a it, it's truly like one of the greats of his for me. Is it pushing any bounds in that film? Really, not like RoboCop is pushing bounds. Not like Total Recall is pushing bounds. Um, so for me, I think you know maybe we go back to Starship Troopers. I think that was a movie that was really trying to do some interesting alien things and build on everything he learned from you know RoboCop and Total Recall. You know, and only you know seven years. After Total Recall, yeah, I thought I thought that was a really strong showing. What about you? I, I mean, I think so many of those are ones that have stood up, um, have withstood the test of time. And while there are certainly you know levels of Verhoeven that that may work better than others, I mean, I, after I finished RoboCop, I immediately put on Total Recall because I just needed another hit, and it's he that one is so comical. Like there's so much craziness and the violence again in that one. Like he's amping it up, 
he's also starting to increase the sexual energies in that one. You know, we certainly have uh, a little bit more sexual play. It's not, it never really goes too far, but it's starting kind of with um, Schwarzenegger and uh, Sharon Stone. And then, of course, he goes on to do Basic Instinct and Showgirls, which very much really kind of drops a lot of the effects and the sci-fi elements and really focuses on psychology and the sexual nature of humans and stuff. And I, I think Basic Instinct is a fantastic film. Showgirls, I've only seen once, maybe twice, when it when it first came out. I can't remember now. A, definitely an interesting film, and I'm very much looking forward to revisiting it just to see, because that's another one that has been reevaluated over time. And uh, I think that's something that it takes time for people to sometimes click with when it comes to Verhoeven and his films. I think that he puts a lot of satire, a lot of, uh, a lot of things to think about within the films. And sometimes the violence and the sexuality, it's just too much to kind of for American audiences to like fully take on right out of the gate. And it takes some time. Yeah. And so that's, I think why I, I'm, I'm looking forward to revisiting that. And, but Starship Troopers. Yeah. That's one that, I, I feel very much like you. I really enjoyed it. And then I was like, eh, do I really, though? And now I'm like, no, I really <laughs> do. Like, there's so much I really going do. on there. Yeah. Hollow Man is one I've been nervous to revisit because I hated it when I saw it in the theaters. And I, know. I don't know if I want to revisit it because, you know, I, I he's doing some interesting things. What if with you the hate concept. it more? Yeah, exactly. He's doing some interesting things <laughs> with the whole concept of what happens if you're invisible and you have that ultimate power essentially but i i don't know i'm curious to see if it if it ends up working or not that's fascinating well i uh, you know i i think to say i'm a fan of uh verhoven is i think that's kind of an understatement it's uh, like of all the movies that he's done even the ones that are questionable i like them <laughs> i like them already so well and i'm very much looking forward to uh, of his foreign films um like early before he came to hollywood the only thing i've seen is turkish delight which is again definitely exploring a lot of the the sexual nature of the characters within the film it was i didn't like the characters very much i kind of had a hard time with that film but you can definitely see where verhoven is coming from with the way that he's kind of approaching things and so uh, i'm looking forward to seeing what i can find of some of those earlier films of his because i i do find him to always be a challenging very interesting filmmaker original title of that was turk's fruit which feels also like a like a trucker call sign. <laughs> I like it a lot. So uh, do we want to go talk about any of the cast or do, should we just jump into like some of the thematic elements within this film? Because it's. Uh... Uh, yeah. As long as we're talking about people, we got to talk about Peter Weller, right? Yeah. What an interesting guy, Peter Weller. I uh, Would you call yourself a Weller fan uh, in terms of his his work because we this is our i think this is our third peter weller movie right uh well we did buckaroo bonsai naked lunch as a member bonus oh you know what he was in um i have to check myself on this um he was in star trek into darkness i wouldn't call that kind of oh, a weller yeah, film you're right but he was in that yep no good call and uh i think that may be it yeah Okay, so our fourth Peter Weller film, Vehicle, Peter Weller Vehicle. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, how's he holding up? This likely, because I, I didn't see Buckaroo Banzai until later. In fact, it might not have been until you brought it to the show as your guilty pleasure. Yeah. So this would have been, I think, the first thing I saw of his. 
Wow. And then Leviathan a couple years later, which I really enjoyed. I had a lot of fun with that. I'm wondering if that holds up or not. <laughs> I, I had a lot. Yeah, that would it be was, one I'd be more risk, risky to watch again. It was that and Deep Star 6, uh, the two underwater monster films that came out the very same year that um, I had a blast with both of them. I don't know how either hold up. I haven't seen him since. Where do you stand on Screamers? You know, it's an interesting one. I kind of enjoy it. Yeah. I mean, it's the people. Philip K. Dick, Dan O'Bannon. Like, we know these people. <laughs> yeah, right, right. <laughs> they make, And you it, know. it was an interesting, interesting enough and successful enough film to kind of spur, like, didn't, like, weren't there a whole bunch of sequels or was it just one? I'm looking now. Screamers, The Hunting. I thought there were more Screamers films. I'm, I must be thinking of a different one. But regardless... I enjoyed the first Screamers well enough. Yeah, me too. Yeah. Me too. It was Tremors in Space, right? I think that's what the whole concept was. It felt like, the, wasn't it the thing about the underground things that kept sliding along under the surface of the planet? I think so. Yeah. It's been a long time. Because they're, they're called the Screamers, the little alien creatures that you have to be very careful of. Yeah. So I remember having a, a fondness for that movie, but it's another one I probably won't review. Again, because I, I, why would I want to ruin that? <laughs> but Peter Weller, in terms of, you know, what I what I understand of Peter Weller is that he's really strong in this particular kind of role. And then he becomes like a, the, you know, a military leader. He does. He, he's uh, ends up being a, in a position of authority, captain of a starship, for example. Um, you know, he's uh, I think he makes a really interesting choice for these kinds of characters. He's got an interesting face. He's got an interesting kind of demeanor. I don't see he's one of those actors that when I see his name in it, I know exactly what I'm going to get because he's kind of he's got this. He's not much of a character actor to me. He just feels like, oh, it's Peter Weller in another movie and he's great. And I don't feel like he's really burying himself in the part. I just find him to be a um, quieter actor who never seems to be overtly big in projects and you know i mean it's so hard to say because i feel like beyond the robocop films and like naked lunch and screamers i i feel like everything else that i've seen him in is bit parts and so it's just like he doesn't really have a career that that i ever was following and so i it's just it's hard for me to talk outside of of kind of this period of his films where I'm just like, I, I enjoy him enough, but he always has kind of that robotic or, or kind of lost trying to figure things out kind of like he is in naked lunch. Like that kind of seems to be his demeanor, but I just like beyond uh, the mid nineties, it's like, I just, I don't think of him really in much of anything. I didn't see this movie, but it comes terribly recommended. Uh, did you ever see prey? With Bridget Monaghan. Um, I've not seen that break. I can't even. <laughs> this movie. Just look at the poster. Holy Just see cow. if you can look at the poster and see if you want to see it. I wonder what it's about. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> the poster is Bridget Monaghan, uh, inspired by true events. And coming from the margin of poster right is a ferocious lion with blood all over its teeth and face. So real mystery about what this one's about. It sounds exactly, the plot sounds exactly like the uh, Idris Elba movie that just came out. Just came out, yeah. 
It does. You know, a hungry lion, hungry lions trap, in this case, a woman and her two stepchildren inside a car. It's like they just f- flipped the uh, the gender and made yeah. the... It's Cujo with lions. Yeah. Interesting. Well, no, I haven't seen it. Interesting. All right. I haven't seen that either, but he's he's principal in it with Bridget Moynihan. So. Uh, opposite him is Nancy Allen. They smartly decided early on, it doesn't work to have a love story here. In fact, at one point, Verhoeven felt that it should be a little more serious, and he wa- he had them rewrite it with a love story. And he even admitted after he read it, he's like, that, I was so wrong. Take that out. It doesn't work at all. And I'm so glad that they didn't do that. I think Nancy Allen fits Anne Lewis. Like, she works in this role of this character that... Um, he just feels very, you know, policey. Like she feels like a cop. You know, like I, I buy her as an officer in this particular case. Yeah, I do too. I think she's great, and I think, uh, you know, I think you're right. Not having a love interest, and she does, she does have a demeanor and a, a, a she's cute, right? She's sort of classically cute, which makes her an interesting character that you're sort of on the fence about whether you want them to hook up, right? <laughs> like the whole time. It's not like she, it, it's not like they're casting a type that is more, you know, militant, militaristic, uh, tough. Like she looks, she, she looks like, um, you know, casting someone maybe against type that's, that you wouldn't expect to be a police officer. And that gives her a lot of unspoken character traits for me. Like it gives her already a backstory that is unwritten that she's had to overcome a lot to become an officer. She's had to overcome sexism and, and um, you know, those doubting her abilities and all of that stuff to become this sort of tough officer because she looks the way she does. And I think that's a really smart casting choice. And I think she pulls it off, pulls it off enough to be in the other two RoboCop movies. Well, I don't know to what extent in like, as I haven't seen RoboCop 3, and I, I don't even remember how much she's in RoboCop 2. You just watched it. She's she's fully through RoboCop 2. RoboCop 3, uh, um, she's not in it for long, let's just say. I don't want to elaborate. Okay. Since you haven't seen it. Okay. Okay, good. Did we talk about... She was in Blowout. Yeah. Yeah, she was in Blowout. Yeah. Yeah, she's... So we have talked about And Carrie. Before. Like, she's been in a number of uh, De Palma projects. That's right, projects. Carrie. I agree with you that there's an element, though, that I think Verhoeven interestingly captures starts capturing here and certainly by the time we get to starship troopers seems to have uh fully realized his desire to take these roles of police or soldiers and strip humanity from them uh which we see very clearly in both films when you go into locker rooms because it's it's not about men or women it's like if you're taking your top off to put your outfit on you're taking your top off to put your outfit on and you're going to be naked and doesn't matter if if you know you're if you're a man or a woman like nobody's really looking at you that way and we see that in the locker room it's brief here but we do see that here and then he really kind of kicks it up a notch by the time we get to starship troopers i think that is an element that Verhoeven interestingly tackles here. And so I don't know how much there actually was in the moment, in the idea of Lewis having to work harder as a woman in this, because in Verhoeven's world, just the fact that she is a cop, she's stripped her womanhood essentially out of her and she's just become an officer, you know? And I think that's an interesting element in his films. Yeah, isn't that interesting? That's a really interesting element. It's a that that is an element of this movie that is perhaps, you know, progressive ahead of its time. 
Yeah, because uh, I remember even when Starship Troopers came out, the people were like, oh, my God, like these people, like what is going on here? It's just a chance to show all the boobs and everything. But yeah. that's that again, that's not the point. Yeah. And that's that I think is one of those things that comes to the reevaluation of his of his films. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Should we talk about the thugs? Just bust through the thugs because there's some interesting stuff going on with the thugs. Sure. Who do you want to talk about? Well, of, of course, of course, we need to talk about Kurtwood. Talk about a face for evil. Kurtwood Smith as Clarence Boddicker. He is a, a diabolical character in this in this film. I have a lot of fondness for him because I was a big fan of of that '70s show. Uh, and Which he one played the the that you know that one that '70s show? I see what you did there. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, he's been in a, a lot of movies that I, I like very, very much. The Undiscovered Country, uh, you know, being one of them. He is such an interesting character. He talked about a character actor like he's such an interesting face for this stuff. I thought it was fascinating to see him, you know, again, after, you know, years of watching him in other roles where he's, you know, to some degree, not a good guy, be, come back and just fully own being the evil uh, character that he is in this movie, right? Just just an agent of chaos. He's the Joker in this in this film, right? The miss like the, we don't even try to understand backstory because he's just chaos. All I have to say about Kurtwood Smith, who I absolutely love in this film, is um, when he turned up a couple years later as the dad in Dead Poet Society. It made perfect sense. Right. Let's just say that, right? <laughs> right. Oh my goodness, so good. Yeah. Yeah, I totally I totally think so. He's perfect. Uh and uh I I think very very highly of him in his role as Boddicker. He meets the right end too. Yeah. He's got buddies. Uh and the one that stands out the most to me is Ray Wise, uh Leon Nash. Why does he stand out the most? I it it's so funny, right? That he's that guy, but he's just a face that I feel like I know so well and can't tell you what he's been in that I I know him from until I see his face in it. <laughs> he's done a lot of stuff. Uh a lot of TV, 250 credits <laughs> to his name. So, uh, yeah, I mean he's everywhere. He's done uh Star Trek, he's done Star Trek. It's been the um he was in uh, the fan-created one that wasn't very good that that stands out, but he was also in Gilmore Girls. He showed up in a in a special run of the Gilmore Girls. He was on uh, The Young and the Restless for seventy straight episodes. Like wow, he's just been everywhere. Agent Carter. Uh, he was on Agent Carter as Hugh Jones, huh. the TV series. Um, so it, it feels like wherever I turn around, his is a face that just kind of shows up. Yeah. You're not so it's, you you're telling me you didn't catch him uh, as one of the faces that you recognized a lot. He's a face that I without realizing like he's just a that guy. Like, I don't know if I I piece him together completely, but looking through his uh, his filmography. Oh, Swamp Thing, Cat People, The Journey of Natty Gan. Yeah. Uh, Twin Peaks, Fire Walk With Me, Bob Roberts, uh, Powder. Good night. Good like, luck. Like there were a lot of things. I'm like, oh, OK, I've seen a lot of films with him. And but I guess he's just not a face that I've ever connected, uh, which is weird to me. Yeah. But I do enjoy him here. But, yeah, you know, if I were to pick one of the the bad guys, I mean, it absolutely would be uh, Paul McCrane as ML Antonowski 
not just because of the fantastic toxic waste uh, monster that he essentially turns into, but really it's because he like his I I like it line. Like I think that is just one of those iconic lines from this movie that I say a lot, and uh, I just I kind of just love yes. love him in this film. So and he was in ER for a long time. Uh, as a just a sort of a malignant doctor and i think he was the one oh man this is going to take me back a little bit i think his character was the character who lost his arm in a horrible helicopter accident and then was killed off on the show by a helicopter falling off the hospital or some building and landing on him what later yeah it, it was it was like i think that was him uh, Robert Romano, uh, wow. but that's it, it was a good death. Uh, so, yeah, ER post Clooney ER was rough. <laughs> Jeez, wow. <laughs> well, he was uh, he popped up briefly in Rocky Two. He was in Fame, uh, the Hotel New Hampshire, the Blob, yes, the Shawshank Redemption. So he's been in some some solid things. Um, but this forever will be the film that defines him as an actor for me because I just have so much fun with his, his character of Emil. Yeah, me too. I already briefly mentioned uh, the old man, Daniel O'Hurley, as the CEO. And I just have to say, like, as an actor who had been working for a very long time, he ended up in some uh, some really fun sci-fi fantasy sorts of films later in his career, like Halloween 3 Season of the Witch, this, and unfortunately RoboCop 2, which I, I didn't like his character. It went, it seemed a little uh, odd switch for that film. Uh, but my favorite perhaps is the last starfighter where he is grig the the lizard alien guy that is co-pilot for our hero alex rogan in the uh, starship and uh his voice is just like his voice his character in that i just i love him in that film that's awesome that's awesome yeah. i did i wouldn't have put that together yeah I, it's his the voice is what yeah what is the puzzle the puzzle piece that makes it work for me but uh, yeah he's just just great funny this film idea came from Edward Neumeyer. He was uh, working in uh, at Universal as a junior story exec, had an idea while he was um, kind of helping out on the Blade Runner set, and it kind of turned into this idea of essentially this film. He ended up finding this aspiring director, Michael Miner, and the two of them just kind of came up with this whole script and pieced the whole thing together. They ended up pitching it to Jonathan Kaplan, the director, and, and John Davidson, the producer, over at Orion. And they um, they liked it. They they liked the satire that they included. And uh, they set to, to work on kind of coming up with this. Um, it took a while to actually find a director. And uh, Verhoeven actually rejected it initially, but um, finally came on board after his wife read the script and said, I think you're missing it. I think there's something in here that you haven't clicked with because he thought the sat he didn't understand the satire and because he wasn't American. And so he didn't get kind of like what they were doing as far as the, the sat, the satirizing corporate society and the whole idea of uh, kind of humanity and masculinity and all of these different things. And so that's, I think, um, that was the missing piece. And once he kind of clicked with that and the, and the humor, he was able to kind of tackle it. But that's kind of how this thing came to be. And maybe that should uh, be a jumping off point for us to jump into 
talking about some of these things that he's satirizing, like corporate power. Yeah, I think that's one of the most interesting things. Like it's set it and set in Detroit, filmed in Dallas, set in Detroit because, you know, Detroit has had uh, <laughs> Detroit's had a rough history yes. uh, of just being a tough crime ridden town and setting the film in Detroit and putting this authoritarian robot police force in place uh, under the guise of healing the the crime woes of the city is an interesting and inspired sort of choice like this is a real pain point in the fabric of american you know culture and i i think they they nail that choice but making it under the auspices, under the authority of this this con- this contractor, essentially, you know, military contractor, is the bit of kind of political satire that we're we're talking about. It's funny and horrible that these this company OCP is in this weird partnership with you know the state that can no longer run its you know its own law enforcement effectively. I think this movie allows you to question, hey, this this is just uh, this is a silly science fiction action film and also like we're dealing with this stuff. Somebody is is thinking ahead that uh, you know, as we look at the over militarization of police in American cities, that's right now, right? Like it it doesn't take very much for us to look at RoboCop and think, hey, this could be a future for us. Maybe not the robot human, you know, cyborg element, but certainly the drone element that makes this movie proficient or or, uh, prophetic. Well, and the whole idea of corporate rule and, and, you know, it's such an interesting the corporation in and of itself is such an interesting entity. And there was a really interesting documentary that came out in the early aughts, I think, called Corporation that really kind of looked at what a corporation is, like the definition of a corporation, and it compared it to the definition of insanity. And it went through the checkboxes of like, you know, what does it take to define somebody as insane? What is, you know, and then lining that up with how a corporation is run. And it's like, based on all of that, a corporation is insane. And like, it, it's just nonsense the way that these things are run. <laughs> and putting the um the choices of a corp- of corporate interests in charge of of you know society society's interests makes no sense at all it's never going to look at the people as essential because it's always going to be looking for the bottom line how can we make more money and just the fact that the police are so overrun with crime in the city of Detroit which has been falling apart as it's depicted here we're getting this sense that the corporation doesn't really care that the police can't handle it because for them that equals an opportunity to use these programs it's like let the police go on strike we'll just build more machines to run it and then we can manage everything much more efficiently and i think that's the that's the thing that makes it so interesting in the way that the writers and Verhoeven are thinking about all of this and kind of portraying it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and you can already see it. I mean, they, the, every corner gives us an opportunity to evaluate the corporation making decisions for profit and, and for own gains. And that we look at these, you know, you know, corporations as complex organisms of individuals, that first exchange when the Ed 209 kills the guy and they come around and, and you already brought it up that it becomes opportunity for another program to get legs, to get funded, to get off the ground. Like that's the entire ethic of of the corporation. And uh, and so, yeah, this movie is uh, it's pretty dark uh, in that regard. 
And you even like when, you know, we get those fantastic commercial breaks and the news breaks and you're getting a lot of um, a sense of how they're really poking at this time Reagan was president and the whole Reaganomics element that he had uh, been espousing and uh, everything. And, and none of it really like they're they're making a lot of fun of everything kind of going on in the Reagan era. Like, you know, the the board game that the family is playing together is called Nukem. And yeah. like all of these <laughs> things that that just feels so much out of that era. Um, they're finding ways to tap into. And I think that's one of the the most enjoyable parts of what they do here. Yeah, totally. Yeah, we already mentioned this, the 6,000 sucks, uh, which is perfect. The SUX, perfect. And, and, and we did kind of talk a little bit about kind of the the element, the, the thematic element that they're exploring a little bit with kind of the humanity of these creatures and everything. And that's, that I think was an important element for Verhoeven. He's actually even brought up the idea of the moment when Murphy gets killed is like his um, his crucifixion. Like he compares him to Jesus, and uh, and then he's resurrected essentially as this as this being who, as he says, walks on water when he's at the steel mill and everything. And and it's it's an interesting idea of taking the idea of creating this thing that is um, you know reborn and quote more pure and I, I think there's interesting elements to everything that that he's doing here and even just the nature of robocop looking so big like it's you know especially in the 80s we had schwarzenegger stallone like all of these incredibly massive heroes in you know often in skimpy outfits like in you know in movies and so the idea of masculinity also became a, a key point for him well that apparently schwarzenegger was on the shortlist for this movie yeah and yeah. weller worked better because he was he had a slender frame and could fit in the gigant gigantic suit that they were putting him in and schwarzenegger would have, can you imagine schwarzenegger actually i think schwarzenegger was probably cast to be the ed 209 <laughs> probably. that would have been funny <laughs> probably <laughs> you had 20 seconds to comply <laughs> <laughs> well and it's just it goes to show like uh, the idea of Schwarzenegger coming in for this, you can see Verhoeven saying, okay, that doesn't work, but I definitely want to work with you on something. And of course, the very next project he does, Total Recall, he brings Schwarzenegger in and and uh, just a fantastically fun time with that film. And gets to wear his street clothes, his civvies. Yes, exactly. Um, I just, I we have to mention, I know we're wrapping up here, but Basil Polidoris' score is uh, just fantastic. Kind of Legendary. The, the slamming on the anvil throughout that just builds kind of that metallic feel that we have with the music you know as he blends all these different elements together it just it's just such a such a fantastic score it's fantastic yeah it really is uh and and it reminds me of the classic scores of the era right the t2 and i mean there's these all of these robot movie scores ended up the aliens uh right the scores that are just incredible and all fit of a piece this one this one's right at home all right I, I think that's it. So we'll be right back. But first, our credits. The Next Reel is a production of True Story FM, engineering by Andy Nelson, music by St. Samuel, Oriel Novella, and Eli Catlin. Andy usually finds all the stats for the awards and numbers at the-numbers.com, boxofficemojo.com, imdb.com, and wikipedia.org. Find the show at truestory.fm, and if your podcast app allows ratings and reviews, please consider doing that for our show. 
Andy, can you believe we've almost hit 700 episodes of The Next Reel? I know, it's crazy. And with all the other episodes in our family of podcasts, we are well over 1,200 episodes of Movie Conversation. It's really pretty amazing that we've gotten to have these in-depth movie chats every week for over a decade now. And we couldn't have done it without our loyal community of film fans. Their support over the years has meant so much. For sure. That reminds me, we should give the merch store a shout out. Buying shirts from thenextreel.com slash merch is a great way listeners can continue to support the show. Plus, they get to sport our great designs. Absolutely. I think sometimes folks forget we have a variety of shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more available. In fact, a great place to start is with a shirt sporting the Next Reel's logo. We also have that classic Fast Times Spicoli Surf School tee, or the weirdly popular Rusty's European Tour shirt. The one from National Hemp Foods European Vacation. Why is that so popular? <laughs> Search me, but we have sold a ridiculous number of those. I guess there are a lot of Rusties taking trips to Europe? We're always adding new designs based on movies we've covered, like our brand new design for a streetcar named Desire, featuring a streetcar named Desire. So if you want to rep your love of TNR and films, head to thenextreel.com slash merch. Every purchase helps us continue to have these weekly in-depth conversations. So visit thenextreel.com slash merch today. And as always, thanks for listening and being a part of the Next Real community. We've got lots more great movie chats coming your way. Here we go. Sequels and remakes, Andy. Oh, my goodness. Run them down. This this created a RoboCop cinematic universe. Pretty much did. Right out of the gate. Everybody wanted RoboCop stuff. Even the even the little kids who couldn't see the movie because it was had a hard, a hard R rating, which perhaps is why uh, Marvel Comics adapted it into an animated uh, short run animated series in 1988 that, uh, you know, I, I think had its home, but it, it only lasted 12 episodes. So it wasn't very long. Uh, of course, it was a financial success, so they wanted a sequel. Uh, New Iron Miner started writing it, and then they ref- they were fired because the 1988 writers' strike happened. They refused to work, and I, I don't know. I-, I feel like this wouldn't have happened now because they essentially found scabs to come on to rewrite the script. One of those was Frank Miller, the comic book author, which uh, I was like, oh, Frank Miller actually crossed the picket line to come and work on this. Apparently he did. Wow. Uh, he wrote several drafts of RoboCop 2, the first of which uh, ended up becoming RoboCop 3, and the second of which actually became RoboCop 2. You know, he had some other people um, who also collaborated on those scripts, but that was the those two films, um, 1990 and uh, 93, I believe. And, and Fred Decker directed the third one. Uh, Irving Kirshner directed the second one. So um, uh, by the time the movie was getting made, uh, Verhoeven was busy with Total Recall, so it wasn't jumping on board this one. It spurred on a TV show that lasted 22 episodes. Uh, didn't last very long, but you can still find it. I believe it's streaming on, I think it's on Amazon right now, Amazon Prime. Interesting. There were another animated series called RoboCop Alpha Commando in 1998. There was a four-part live-action miniseries, RoboCop Prime Directives, in 2001. And then there was the 2014 reboot just called RoboCop that essentially was full reboot of it. Uh, Jose Padilla directed it. Joel Kinnaman, the boar of the century, uh, uh, he was the star (laughs) in it. And apparently they're trying to make a sequel to the original RoboCop called RoboCop Returns. 
that would ignore it, it kind of like what they did with the Halloween films. Ignore everything else that has happened. It's just a sequel to the first film. Who knows if it'll get made? We'll see. You, I mean, you buried your opinion of the movie <laughs> in your litany. Joel Kinnaman, I find very boring and flat as an actor. And I, I rarely find him engaging. And the fact, like, as, you know, as a lead, I just, I could not get into him <laughs> okay. in that or into the film with him as the lead. He, he was a snooze. That was that's clear, and I I agree. I this is not his most charismatic role. Would you say that's Silent Night? <laughs> uh, I know you and the Fillmore just talked about that one. We yeah. So I'm just saying we all we we maybe share uh, at least a, there's a Venn diagram in which we do have an, an overlap on the works of Joel Kinnaman, but uh, the work of RoboCop. Uh, there are some things that I thought were actually really cool in them in the re- reboot, and and I think there are things that that just modern effects cycle allows you to do that they couldn't do in the original movie, and I think they probably would have done had they had the ability to do it. And th- just the use of CG to make this character something that is even more horrific and over the top uh, in what was done to him and showing that on screen, I thought was really cool. I love when they peel off the robot suit and they actually get what uh, what's his name wanted in this movie all along, a complete prosthetic body. And so all you have is the breathing lungs and a little bit of spinal cord in the head. And I thought that's over the top, ridiculous and so cool. Like, I get it. I get that it's that it's ridiculous, but so cool. I love the way he has more of his like movement moves more fluidly. And I think that's a really I, I thought the RoboCop itself was was better in the reboot than it was in the in the original. I think they they leveled it up in the right ways for me. Did I love the the performance? I didn't love the performance. Was the movie uh kind of a slog and Snooze. weird yeah. slog? Like why was like with those people in it? Like the cast was awesome and why did it feel so slow? Yeah. It's an action movie about a robot cop. It has no excuse to be slow, but it was slow. But the RoboCop itself, I thought, was an improvement in that movie. The final fight was awesome. The idea of a robot cop who can't do anything but walk really slowly definitely i understand your your issues with this film because he's really slow he doesn't get around quickly um and i I think that is perhaps uh, a fatal flaw with this idea of a robot cop ever working because you know people could just run away real fast and i mean i i know he can aim really well but if there were a lot of them he might have a hard time but (laughs) sure they do update that to modern sensibilities where the robot robocop in that film can move a lot faster he runs really fast uh you know he can do everything a lot better but to that end i will always favor this one that one sure they updated what a cop robot cop can do but other than that it there's nothing good about that film it's the title of the movie <laughs> it's like the point i thought they did it well i certainly i certainly thought it was better than one star but not maybe not much maybe not much well they they, they seemed to clearly miss the entire uh point of this film of of doing anything satirical like they just basically turned it into an action film with an evil corporation and a hundred percent right i'm like uh okay you there's nothing in this to watch it's just a modern 
uh, action film that that you know is named RoboCop. But you know what the problem is, Andy? I think the problem that the movie has is that there's like they decided to try to stay to hew too closely to the original movie, which back in 1987 had had more material to satirize. If you're just trying to remake that movie, we already live in the satire. So give us something else. What else are you going to try to do to level up? And they did none of that. They did none of that in the remake. I totally agree. Well, the, and they could have really played with that. I mean, yeah. this film came out in. 2014, they they could have, and, and then it takes place in 2028. They could have taken things and really found ways to amp it up to do something much more interesting with it, and they didn't. Okay, so we're here for the awards. We've talked a lot about the effects and the awards. How else did it do in the award system? System? Award, <laughs> the award system. Award season. Uh, it had 11 wins with 13 other nominations. You know, pretty strong compared to some of our others in this series. Over at the Oscars, it was nominated for Best Sound, but lost to The Last Emperor. Same thing with Best Film Editing, nominated there, but also lost to The Last Emperor. And it won the award for Special Achievement Award for Sound Effects Editing at the Oscars. Wow, Over at, I can see that. Yeah, absolutely. At the I mean, you hear the sound of RoboCop, like anytime he's coming in yeah. or he's moving and everything. I mean, yeah, that's perfect sound. Over at the Saturn Awards, uh, Science Fiction, Fantasy, and Horror, uh, Peter Weller was nominated for Best Actor, but lost to Jack Nicholson in The Witches of Eastwick. Nancy Allen was nominated for Best Actress, but lost to uh, Jessica Tandy in Batteries Not Included. Best Costume was lost to The Princess Bride. And then it won Best Director, Best Makeup, Best Science Fiction Film, Best Special Effects, and Best Writing. Over at the BAFTAs, uh, uh, Carla Palmer was nominated for Best Makeup Artist, but lost to Fabrizio Sforza in The Last Emperor. And it was nominated for Best Visual Effects. Uh, this is uh, the, the British window of releases, lost to Who Framed Roger Rabbit, which actually here in the States came out the next year. The Edgar Allan Poe Awards, it was nominated for Best Motion Picture, but lost to Stakeout. And last, last but not least, it was nominated for the Hugo Awards Best Dramatic Presentation, but lost to The Princess Bride. So this is the last film in our series we've talked about, again, Interspace, Predator, The Lost Boys as a member bonus, The Princess Bride, and RoboCop. The category, 1988 Academy Awards Best Visual Effects, had two nominees, Interspace and Predator, Interspace won. Where do you stand? We've got these five films, plus, you know, countless others that were released in 87. This was one of those years that had so many visual effects. I don't know why the category, this is one of those weird categories where they only nominate a couple or they only put a couple in depending on how many get uh, are applicable, you know, and all this sort of stuff. And it ended up with only two. I don't know why. I'd be fine with all five of these being nominated. There are other films from 87 that I would put on a list. The question is, which one would you vote for? Yeah. I mean, Interspace One, incredible, incredible miniature work of creating the inside of Martin Short's body as uh, you have Dennis Quaid flying around inside there and everything. Plus, you have character transformations and all sorts of stuff. Predator, you've got the fantastic creature design. You've got all of the fantastic um, kind of cloaking that he's doing, the infrared, all of the the gore and everything in that film. So just of the two nominees, I can see why they're nominated. I can see why perhaps Interspace was favored. I mean, it's a Spielberg-sized you know budget with effects. Also, more people saw it, right? As It's a family film, right? So you get more sort of, you know, it, it answers more demos. Yeah, right. 
the Lost Boys has a lot of fantastic vampire effects. Obviously, the the makeup effects for the for each of the vampires when they transform. But really, once you get to that last fight and everybody is uh, fighting and dying, just all the wonderful vampire gory deaths. Um, it's it's quite a bit of fun. Yeah, the Princess Bride is probably the one at the least. I mean, you still have things like you know what they were doing with the Cliffs of Insanity, the Shrieking Eels, the rats, rodents of unusual size. Um, a lot of mat work and stuff like that. Uh, you know, if, if there's one that doesn't fully fit this list, I would take that off and put something like Batteries Not Included on here. Uh, I have a hard time not going with RoboCop, though. And perhaps it's just so fresh in my mind. But this and Inner Space, I think, are the two that, you know, have a fully complete like slate of types of vi- visual effects. And I just feel RoboCop really achieved quite a bit. The thing about RoboCop is I, I can also, I, I think I'm with you, but I can also see why Interspace uh, would, would be picked over even RoboCop because of just the kind of movie it is. I, I, I have a hard time imagining the Academy going for a hard R. Well, Predator was nominated. Oh, yeah, that's a good point, but didn't win. That's what I mean. Like, say if they're all, say they're all nominated and we get, a, we get our wish, I think Interspace still wins. Well, because of the Spielberg friendliness of that one, I think perhaps you're right. I think it's hard for them to um, not go opposite that. If, like, you throw something like Batteries Not Included on here, which also was an Amblin Entertainment film, that's when you start splitting those votes and maybe something else ends up coming out on top. Yeah. That's a tricky one. The uh, So how to do it at the box office? You said it was a box office success. It was. Yes, Verhoeven's budget for his film was 13.7 million uh, all told, which is about 36.6 million in today's dollars. The movie opened July 17th, 1987 opposite Disney's re-release of Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs and Jaws: The Revenge, which we've talked about as a member bonus episode. This took the number <laughs> 1 spot for the weekend, but Snow White outperformed it during the week and landed in the number 1 spot for opening week. The movie stayed in the top 20 for 11 weeks and went on to earn 53.4 million domestically and a paltry 700.5,000 internationally. I don't know if those are complete figures. Regardless, that's what I have. So that gives us a total gross of 144.5 million in today's dollars. This lands a film with an adjusted profit per finished minute of 1.1 million and set it up, perhaps unfortunately, for several sequels. Okay, so Robocop, Predator, uh, Interspace, and uh, Jaws the Revenge. Does that complicate it for you? <laughs> okay. Oh, wow. Okay, 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 okay. I'm really glad we talked about this movie. I love it so much. And uh, even though I also have room in my heart for the updated RoboCop, this is still a very, very special movie for me. Yes, fantastic sure. film. I had the opportunity to see it in 35 uh, last year on my birthday, which was a wonderful treat. And uh, it's the one I will just love forever. So we'll be right back for our ratings. But first, here's the trailer for next week's movie, kicking off what should be a fun series to look at. The 1996 Golden Raspberry Awards. That's right. The Razzies for Worst Director nominees, starting with Frank Marshall's adaptation of Michael Crichton's book. That's right. We're heading to Congo. Activate the remote. In the race for the world's most advanced communications technology, a shocking discovery has been made. What was that? Lock your remote. Give me a thermal reading result to 6-6. Six, six. 
It will take two young scientists into the heart of the African jungle. Where a secret hidden for 2,000 years holds the key to the future. This is Karen Ross. 81452 Houston, do you read? You used to work for the CIA, and now you're travel cool. Some will come to it for science. This is a big deal, Charles. This is a big find. Some for fortune. A diamond mine of incredible bounty. And some to return home. She doesn't really belong anywhere, does she? No, she belongs here. Together, they will search. My boss, he thought I wasn't going to make it. He sent another expedition. Drawn deep into a mystery. Camp destroyed, people dead, a gray gorilla. No such thing as a gray well, gorilla. I saw one. And the more they discover... Same hieroglyphics over and over. The greater the danger. What do they say? We are... Watching you. Help me! Help me! Ah! Yeah! Never saw an animal move like that. Shoot it! Shoot it! How intelligent are they? See, they're smart. They're too damn smart. Watch out! Go! We're getting out of here. What about them? Put them on the endangered species list. From the best-selling novel by the author of Jurassic Park. The myth of the killer ape is true. Congo, where you are the endangered species. It is hard to believe we've been having in-depth weekly conversations about movies since 2011. You're telling me producing this show week after week is so much fun, but it does require a lot of work behind the scenes. If you'd like to help support our efforts, one easy way is by using our Originals page when shopping for books and movies that we've covered. Your purchases made through our links give us a small commission at no extra cost to you and allow us to keep having these great discussions. The Originals page at thenextreel.com slash originals links to the source material for all of our adapted film discussions. Purchasing through our links supports the show. In Season 13, we explore various awards categories and the films nominated in them. We wrapped up our 1940 Best Picture series with adaptations of Mice and Men from John Steinbeck and Wuthering Heights from Emily Bronte's novel, not to mention the play Dark Victory by George Brewer Jr. and Bertram Block. The 1947 Academy Award adapted screenplay series featured Anna and the King of I Am, based on Margaret Langdon's book, plus The Best Years of Our Lives, Brief Encounter, and The Killers. The 1952 cinematography nominees included Death of a Salesman and A Streetcar Named Desire, A Place in the Sun, based on both a play and a book, and Strangers on a Train, based on Patricia Highsmith's first novel. So many great movies based on books and plays, like Beckett, The Pumpkin Eater, A Boy and His Dog, Rollerball, The Princess Bride, Congo, The Scarlet Letter, Jackie Brown, The Deep End, The Gray, The Woman in Black, and Top Gun Maverick, which I'm very much looking forward to revisiting. Get the source books at thenextreel.com slash originals. Start your next read or reread from the movies we've covered. Visit thenextreel.com slash originals today. Oh, man, I'm so worried about all of these movies. I'm worried that I might like them. Uh, that, that's what's fun about them. I bet, I bet, <laughs> I bet we will like three fifths. <laughs> I don't know. I'm trying to, I'm trying to guess. Okay. All right. 
Letterboxd, Andy, it's uh, time to see where the stars land for Letterboxd. My hunch is it's like last week. We're kind of done before we start. Is it five stars and a heart? Oh, it's straight up five stars in our heart with this one. Uh, pretty much always has been just, you know, this period, again, just so defined my what I enjoy in youth. film. Yeah, and my youth and everything. Yeah. It's just I love the films in this era and just the visual effects I love. So, yeah, very much, very easy five star in heart. Absolutely. For me, too. Enough said. All right. Well, don't forget, you can find the show over on Letterboxd at The Next Reel. You can find me at... Soda Creek Film, and you can find Pete at Pete Wright. So what did you think about RoboCop? We'd love to hear your thoughts, even the remake. How about the Show Talk channel over in our Discord community, where we'll be talking about the movie this week. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. Letterbox give it, Andrew. As Letterboxd always doeth. Well, we went uh, we we went higher than maybe last week. Did, High yeah. to the top of review activity. High and right. So, uh, okay, uh, really, I mean, they're both four and a half stars. What do you want to do? You want to rock paper scissor it? What do you want to do? You want to just do it? You just do it. Yours is yours is your favorite character in the movie anyway. <laughs> I've got four and a half by Matt Singer, four, four and a half with a heart. The bad guy's name is Dick Jones. The super killer robot is defeated by a flight of stairs. A man falls in a vat of toxic waste and is instantly turned into a mutant fish, fish creature thing. And then he's hit by a car and is instantly liquefied like he's a human water balloon. God, I love Paul Verhoeven. <laughs> <laughs> That's outstanding. And I've got Demi at DJ Weebay's uh, four and a half star on a heart who says, when people jerk me off, I kill them. This is a masterpiece. Looks great. Score rules. Satire is absolutely on point all the way down. That employee's excitement as their boss is about to be shot through the window. Lee Iacocca Elementary School is a throwaway detail. I'd buy that for $3.99 with a 30-day window to start watching with a 48-hour period before expiring upon pressing play. <laughs> Thanks, Demi. Oh, God. What a great movie. Thanks, Letterboxd. I've been podcasting since 2006. In that time, I've tried countless hosting platforms. But in August 2022, we switched to Transistor to power all of our shows here at True Story FM. And it's been a game changer. I love the Transistor allows unlimited podcasts and storage without extra charges. We can publish so much content. And we do. If you want to start up a podcast, do yourself a favor and host your show on Transistor. With their one-click publishing, you can get your new show onto all the major podcast directories effortlessly. And their website builder lets you quickly build custom sites for each show. The detailed analytics are invaluable, too. You can access all kinds of listener data anytime. Oh, and the versatile players allow you to embed episodes anywhere to reach new listeners. Plus, the team behind Transistor is super responsive and keeps making the platform even better. After using countless hosting services over 15 plus years, Transistor has been hands down the best podcast partner for us. If you want a hosting platform to take all the worry out of getting your podcast out into the world, go to thenextreel.com slash transistor and check it out. Support our show and support your own show by going to thenextreel.com slash transistor. Start growing your podcast today. Today.